We're going to read out of Jonah chapter 1, and, um, well, and as you all witnessed, like, we do have an opportunity here at the church to um, come alongside parents and help disciple these kiddos um, to the point where they do um, become baptized, and as elders, we are really encouraging all of you to at least stop by in the lobby to the um, Say Yes to the Next Generation wall. Um, And even if you're not going to be going in and helping out, like grab a card um, and maybe put it away and pray for for the person that is going to take that job and that God's going to really um, fill those spots here um, at Life Community Church. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And verse 17 of the same chapter says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Steinbach. I am one of the elders here at Life Community Church. It's been my privilege of my wife and I to be attending this church since the year 2000, back when we used to meet at Vineyard School and the cafeteria there, and we've been through many ups and downs, but God's brought us here to a great place. And that's a hard act for me to follow, to get up after eight baptisms. Isn't that great? Can everyone give another round of applause for everyone who's baptized? All right, I expect the same thing when I finish my sermon today, so just remember that. (laughs) I've been a Christian for 43 years. I've been married 39 years. We have two adult sons who live here in the North County. Most of my adult life, I've been a a Bible study leader. I had the fortune to become a Christian when I was about 17 years of age, about the time when their brain's still working pretty good. And so I, I got into God's Word very early, and that's been kind of the heartbeat of my life. I've mainly been a small group leader. I've done discipleship and those sort of things. For the last oh, seven or eight years, I've been an elder on and off. I do a term, I try to get out of it, and then something happens, I'm back on the elder board again, so that's what, where I currently am. And as elders, we're supposed to be able to teach, as it says in First, uh, First Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3, and though I may be able to teach, you, I may be also able to drive a stick shift, but you may not want me driving a moving van up the Colorado Rockies. But uh, I hope that God will impart something uh, important and meaningful to you today. Uh, the reason I got in the book of Jonah is last Christmas, my wife Nancy asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said, well, uh, our pastor Brandon te- seems to be teaching out of this ESV Bible, and I don't know why when you get a new pastor you have to go to a new Bible version, but that's what happened here. And anyway, so uh, for Christmas, lo and behold, I get the Bible, and a day or two after Christmas, I'm looking at it. And like all elders, we've been specifically trained to how to study a new Bible, and maybe you've done this too, is you just get the new Bible, you open it to some place in the center, and you stick your finger down. And I just happened to call upon the book of Jonah. And I thought, well, this is great. I mean, I've really loved God's Word. I've been through it many times in my adult life and studied and taught out of it. And I haven't really studied the book of Jonah for about four or five years. And I thought, well, this would be a good thing. And as I kind of developed it, God kind of brought some new things to my mind. That's the wonderful thing about God's Word 
is that even though you've been through it many times, God will have a way of taking a passage or a chapter or a book that you've seen many times, and it'll teach you something new. And that's sort of what I got out of the lesson today. So we have in the book of Jonah. I apologize that the print's a little small, but uh, I, I hope you'll get to it. I've got you study notes there, and there's a couple of places if you want to add in and write some things down, feel free to do that. But I pray that God will encourage you and inspire you and challenge you today, frankly. So anyway, we have the book of Jonah. Here it is. It's this, uh, many of us, it's a children's story. Our kids in Sunday school may know the lesson better than we do, or our understanding of it may not be much different than a Sunday school lesson. We're seeing the little activity pictures our kids bring back from Sunday school, coloring outside the lines. You know it's the story of Jonah because you see this big happy whale in it. Or maybe you, uh, you were raised on uh, DVDs of Jonah and the great fish, or you've, uh, uh, you've uh, ex- heard the story that way. It's this happy story. You know, God kind of, pro- uh, in the story here, kind of provides a little aquatic Uber, which takes the reluctant prophet to Nineveh. A bunch of vegetables jump around, and they're happy. They hear God's, God's love. The city's saved. They sing a couple songs. And the story ends happily. And that's how most of us sort of remember the story of Jonah. But as I read it this year, I really felt that God was teaching me something new this time. And it, it, it doesn't end happily. The story of Jonah is supposed to make us think. It's supposed to challenge us. And I hope that's what it will do today. So a little bit of history, because I'm a Bible study leader, and so I'll try to kind of... Uh, Go through the history here quickly if that kind of, kind of helps your understanding of it. But I, I think it, will, it helps you to give a better perspective on what goes on in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is part of the Old Testament referred to as the Minor Prophets. There are 12 Minor Prophets. And they're, they're just shorter books of, uh, of, of Scripture than the other ones. The, the bigger books are uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And those are referred to as the Major Prophets. But as a, a, a Bible preacher once said, the Minor Prophets are all definitely major league. Even the small books have something important that God wants to impart to us. Jonah is found historically in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. He's just mentioned there in a a passing blip. He was a prophet during the 41-year reign of Jeroboam II. That's Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam XI, for those who are keeping score. He was a wicked king who was nonetheless successful and prosperous. And this is, a, I really encourage you when you're doing Bible study at home to have a good Bible study, uh, a Bible that has helps and maps in them. It really helps to have a better understanding. And I, I know the print is small there, but I'll just kind of go over the color code for you. The, the red blocks there represent the minor prophets. The green blocks represent what are called the major prophets. There's other contemporaries mentioned, uh, that are yellow that are mentioned off to the right. And then right below the, uh, the prophets there in blue are the kings of Judah. And then in that purple or lavender or whatever color my wife tells me that is, that represents the, king, uh, the kings of Israel. And you can see for Jonah, who's in the far left-hand red corner that you see there, you drop down, Amaziah is the king of Judah, and Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. And at this point in their, uh, in their history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. It's no longer just the nation of Israel. Uh, they've been divided by, uh, there's like a civil war that's occurred when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes, uh, uh, becomes king. He's harsher on the people, and it divides into the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel, and the, the two southern tribes of the kingdom of Judah. At this time, neither of the nations is in captivity, although it's long past the golden age of King David and Solomon with not only the splendor and military might, but also the righteousness is no longer there. 
So a short fact for those of you who want to write it down, and it really helps you in understanding when you get all of those narrative books in the Old Testament. Right after you get past Ruth, you start going into First and Second Kings and make your all, the way, all your way through all the minor and the major prophets. Sometimes if we just kind of, read, kind of speed read through them and we don't have a timeline, we lose a little bit of the perspective. But the important thing when looking at all of that is the kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem is the capital. And during their time frame, there were 20 kings. 10 were good and 10 were bad. And the Bible distinguishes being good and bad between whether or not they promoted the God of Israel or whether they promoted idolatry. The kingdom of Israel, by contrast, the one that Jonah is unfortunate enough to have to serve, Samaria is the capital. And during their lifetime, there were 19 kings and one queen, and all the rulers were evil. So the kingdom of Israel continues to get worse and worse and halfway through the timeline when Jonah's here, things have gotten quite bad, and uh, at least spiritually. But it's a breather. It's, it's, there's this complacent time in Israel at this time. King Jeroboam has succeeded in recapturing the lands that were lost uh, during previous kings. And Israel was once again as large and as strong as they were as when the, it, it split when Solomon was there. Uh, the, the nemesis of uh, Israel, Assyria, still hasn't really reared its head yet. They're busy off fighting other civil wars. And so Israel's in this complacent place, not worried about their enemies. So a little history about Assyria. I'll, I'll go through this fast so I don't lose too many of you here. But the roots go back to 2700 BC. They were part of the Fertile Crescent, that area where Abraham came from. There was uh, abundant rainfall, the rivers, so the uh, crops and stuff grew very well. Uh, and and because, along with the crops and all the rain, they were able to cattle and other things they were able to do quite well. So Assyria was a very wealthy nation, and they put a lot of their money into their military. They were, an ex uh, they, they were such a large empire that they take over what is now four countries, I Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and Iran. For hundreds of years, they were known as a great power. They were a warrior nation. Uh, they were known for being great horsemen and uh, implementing cavalry. They had chariots and spears, whereas many, many times they were fighting people that had nothing more than farm tools. So they were very, very successful. Uh, in the military, you had to serve three-year terms. You went through one year fighting wars, one year rebuilding places that you had captured and lost, and then you got to spend a year home with your family. So they were a very experienced warrior nation, and they were quite good at what they did. But the dark side behind that is behind all of their advanced weaponry and well-trained soldiers. Assyria delighted in torturing their enemies. They often mutilated and killed women and children. The Assyrians began the practice of impaling, where they would go to attack a fortified town, someplace that was going to require a siege. They would take villagers from outside the city walls, and they would bring them up to where the people of the city could see them. They would take a, a, a shaft from a spear or some large rod, and they would pierce it through uh, your collarbone, out through the middle of your body, out through your rectum, and they'd stake you there and watch you die or uh, do various forms of torture so that the people would see, this is what's going to happen to you. Assyria was so feared that many nations, when their army would come to their village or their settlement, they would try to give up and negotiate surrender rather than try to fight. Such was their cruelty, and, uh, and they were greatly hated and, uh, and feared by the people around them, including Israel and the prophet Jonah. Yet we're here in 792 BC. It's restored Israel. It's 60 years before Assyria is going to capture the nation of Israel. And it's 150 years before the prophet Nahum prophesies Assyria's downfall. So Assyria's dark days with Israel are still yet to come before the book of Jonah. 
So Jonah's likely in the city of Samaria. It's Israel's capital. He's spent a lifetime preaching to people that don't hear him. Uh, he's hated by the religious leaders and the political leaders, probably fearing for his life half the time, getting very little success in his ministry. And the word of the Lord comes to him to do something completely different, to go and to preach to the city of Nineveh in Assyria. Well, Jonah hears this, and he, he heads to Joppa to catch a ship, and most of you know what happens next. But instead of catching, uh, as he catches a boat to the, the city of Tarshish instead, which is in Spain. So God has directed him to go 750 miles northeast, and instead Jonah heads 3,000 miles west. That's like if God tells you that he wants you to go to Salt Lake City here after church, and instead you go up to San Francisco, get in a cruise ship, and head 500 miles past Hawaii to one of Gilligan's uncharted desert islands. So Jonah is running from God in a big way. But how, do I, how about us? What is, what is your personal Nineveh? How do you run from God in your life? Is it with salvation? You know you need to give your heart to God, and yet you haven't done it yet. Uh, maybe it's an obedience. You're a Christian, but you have some secret sin or something you like to do, something that you don't want to give up and God's asked you to change your heart. You know you need to, but you keep ignoring him. Maybe it's in ministry. Some opportunity comes up to do, uh, to do something or something you've done in the past and you don't want to get involved in that again. Or you see that wall out there and you try to maybe go out the back door so you don't have to pass by the wall and feel convicted. Maybe it's an evangelism. God's set people in your heart that he wants you to share the love of Jesus with, people that are ready to receive the message. And you just check out when the opportunity comes. There's many ways that we can be like Jonah. So now getting all, I spent all that preamble time, and now we're finally to the, the text here in, uh, in Jonah chapter 1. Uh, I have these Lord sends, and there's four times the Lord sends something. Whenever he does, you can write miracle if you want in your notes there. There's big and small miracles that happen throughout the book of Jonah. The Lord sends his first miracle as Jonah's somewhere out. We don't know if he's just cleared the harbor of Joppa or if he's, you know, hundreds of miles offshore at this point. But the Lord sends a great storm that comes up, and it, uh, terrifying winds, and it rustles the, the waves, and the ship is in danger of breaking apart. The, the, the Phoenician sailors, they're superstitious. They don't know what to do. For, uh, they, they tried to lighten the boat. They let go of all of their cargo and lose all of their money, and yet the storm still doesn't go away. And then they, they start casting lots to see who's responsible for this because it seems like it's a supernatural thing. It, isn't, it wasn't a storm they saw coming in the distance. It, it, it appears suddenly and very violently. And they, they go through everyone, and finally they find Jonah hiding in the bottom of the boat. They bring him up. Uh, they cast the lots. They find out that it's him. He explains uh, who his God is and that he's been running from God. And that if you want to get rid of the storm, you need to throw me overboard. Well, the sailors don't want to do that. These swarthy, uh, uh, unreligious, sacrilegious people don't want to don't want to kill him. But finally, they uh, they uh, they they know that they have to uh, throw him overboard. And as soon as they do, the storm miraculously disappears and. The sea goes, uh, goes calm. They probably even see Jonah being swallowed by the whale. And they immediately pray to the Lord to ask for forgiveness. And they make sacrifices and vows and changes of their life. And so as, for those of you who are, we have the history portion. Now we have those of you who are English ma uh, majors. We get into this irony. And there's three times I identify irony in the story of, of Jonah. And irony is the opposite of what we expect. 
Here is Jonah, God's prophet, God's spokesperson, the man who hears from God and tells the truth of God unvarnished to wherever God commands him to do it. But when it and he was fine doing that when he was doing it through the obstinate Jewish people that were living in the mix of idolatry cultures, even though there's no response. He does it because that's what God calls him to do. But when God, God's got to call and ask him to uh, tell them about this coming destruction of Nineveh and even the possibility that God might choose to save these terrible Assyrians, no, God, I don't want to do that. So he disobeys God's command, even though he's God's spokesperson. And we contrast that with these sailors uh, from Joppa trying to spare Jonah's life and fighting against the storm to save him. It's the same thing when we deny God's love and opportunity to others, and yet we see people in the world being more compassionate than we are. And that, that's an irony we really want to avoid. And so now we get to the, this is, gets to be the audience and uh, persistation part of this, uh, of our sermon here. The Lord sends number two, and say it with me, everyone, a big fish. And we have this beautiful drawing here. I think this is a humpback whale, which probably wasn't the type of whale that uh, Jonah would have been swallowed by because they have a baleen, they're a, they're a filter feeder. And I think most of the time as adult Christians, when we think about the story of Jonah, we think, what kind of a fish was it that swallowed Jonah? Many people think it was a sperm whale uh, in the late 1800s when they had whaling and that sort of thing. Sperm whales are the type of things that dive deep and they, they hunt after the giant squid. Uh, there were times in the whaling when they would be trying to kill a sperm whale that someone would fall overboard and someone would be swallowed by a sperm whale and after they killed the whale, they'd find them in the whale's stomach and sometimes they were dead. A couple of times they found people were living but the people were in no, 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 no kind of shape after spending even, even a few minutes or an hour in the belly of a whale. Was it a Leviathan, is like what's mentioned in the book of Job? Was it some special prehistoric dinosaur that God left over uh, to do this task? We don't know. Was it like one of those giant sunfish we see in the Gulf of Mexico that kind of bump up against underwater divers and stuff on the oil rigs and that can really scare them? But no, I don't think everyone's ever been swallowed by a sunfish. But whatever it was, when we get to heaven and we get to see the museum with the special, the special fish from Jonah, we'll get to know what it really was. But whatever it was, it was a special creation because it's not only a miracle that when as soon as Jonah is thrown into the water, uh, this fish is there to save him from drowning, and it's able to uh, hold him and keep him for three days. And although, as we'll see, it was a very miserable experience to be inside the belly of the whale, he still, when this is all finished out of his journey, he goes out and he, he has to go accomplish God's will. And most people, after spending some time in the whale, are not going to go get up and, and go 750 miles anywhere. But so this whole book of Jonah is bathed in miracles. And this is, you can even see that Disney characters have a miserable time in the belly of a whale. We have Geppetto and Figaro here. So even being uh, cast members and receiving all the benefits of being, uh, uh, being part of the Disney heritage don't spare you from the despair of being trapped inside of, of, of a whale. Jesus himself makes reference to the story of Jonah because at this time, you're in, it's in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41, if you want to write that down or take a picture of the screen, whatever you like to do. But uh, the people are asking Jesus for us. They keep asking for miracles and more signs. And Jesus just becomes frustrated with them. And he says in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus makes reference to the time is coming. Something, uh, this is like Jonah, but something greater than Jonah is here. 
that I, I've, just as Jonah was able, spared and lived in the belly of the well for three days and came back alive, so I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and I, I'm going to come back with the newness of life to give you power and greatness. So uh, even Jesus is saying the story of Jonah is true, but yet something greater than Jonah is here uh, in that of Jesus. And we saw the life-changing miracle that we, ha- we had today of eight people uh, being baptized, being uh, uh, they, they were already in the kingdom of God, but baptism is an outward sign of an inward commitment of what was in their hearts and that they want to spend the rest of their life, life walking in the newness of life. And that is a, a great miracle indeed. So uh, my wife and I, we joke about, because we live here in the, the North County where the temperature can get very high. We get those weeks, I don't think it's quite this bad this week, but when it's 105 for three or four days. And middle of the day, you got to go to a, Walmart or Target or someplace with a big parking lot and all that heat radiating off the, there, and it just feels, just feels terrible. My wife, we joke about that. We call that being in the hot box. And Jonah was in the hot box for three days. Now, you think, mo- if, I'd imagine if we took a poll here, if most of you were swallowed by a large aquatic animal and brought under, um, brought under the ocean, that probably after about five minutes, you'd be about ready to surrender to God. But the truth is, a lot of times in our life when we're running away from God, even when things get miserable and are lowest, we, we wallow in that for a while. We're not, we don't immediately surrender. And so Jonah's in this unnatural place. He's in one of the four stomachs of a, uh, uh, of a whale, if it was a whale that he was in. There's the darkness. There's all the digestive juices flowing and stuff going. Uh, sperm whale is, is sitting there, eat, is eating you know, squid. You got, probably, it smells like the back of a, a dumpster in a sushi restaurant. And uh, you can imagine the, wh- the whales going up and down, deep into the water, and the, just the changes in the air pressure and the water pressure made it experience that it was really like being in hell. And he talks about that in Jonah chapter 2. And he's in the well, and he, he transfers it to saying it's, it's like being in Sheol. And you're, but worse than that, you're in this place of you're, you're isolated from uh, anyone and everyone except God. And we all have our experiences at some point in our life where we, we're in this dark place where only you can turn to God. Maybe you've experienced, uh, my wife and I, we experienced, we, we, we had a child born stillborn, and that was probably the hardest thing that we've ever been through. Maybe you've been through, you, you've had your parents, or you've had children that have died, or people that were close to you. Maybe you've been through divorce, or you've, been, you've suddenly lost a job, or been, you're in bad economic circumstances. We can all end up in this dark place, and a lot of times we run around until we finally listen to the voice of God and respond to him. And that's what happens to Jonah here. And here's a picture of what Jonah may have looked like. I don't know for sure, but this is uh, Doc Brown from the Back to the Future film series. As you can see, his hair and his clothes are all bleached white by the gases in the whale's stomach. His face is stretched a little too far from the anguish and stuff that he's been through. He doesn't have enough skin to cover his face. And you just, he just has that look of terror and disbelief. It's like, what's going to happen to me next? This is, this is pretty bad. And he endures this for three days. Like where I said, most of us would be, you know, we'd be tapping out, you know, in five minutes. But, but jo- Jonah hangs on, to, uh, hangs on to his anger for three days. And so when we get into chapter two, and I guess I'm just broad brushing all of this. You can read it more in depth yourself. It's hard to cover four chapters in 40 minutes, so we won't read it all. But from Jonah chapter two, God, he finally says, okay, God, I get it, and I remember and he talks in verse 7 about remembering the Lord when his life was fainting away and his prayer comes to him. And then what I found really interesting as I was doing this study was verse 8 which, there, which says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of a steadfast love. And even in his, 
his torment and anger and knowing that he's disappointed God, he's still, think, he's still thinking about the people that are not Christians and not in a healthy way. It reminds me in Luke 18 where Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the tax collector said, you know, won't even raise his eyes to the altar and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need you. Contrasted by the Pharisee who goes over his list of accomplishments, his many righteousness, his pedigree, how much money he gives to God. And above all that, I thank you that I'm not like this filthy sinner here next to me. And Jesus says it's the Pharisee uh, who, who went away unjustified. It was the tax collector who received forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's, it's another irony. It's like an unwritten irony. Instead of God reaching out the people that are supposed to receive him, he goes to those who are least worthy of it. In this case, it's the Ninevites. So the part of the story that we really liked in junior high, maybe some of the kids from baptism is still here that they would really like, is Jonah gets spit out of the whale after three days. The text will tell you that Jonah gets vomited back out into the dry land. The word of the Lord comes to him. What he's supposed to do hasn't changed. If anything, he's just had to spend three days in the, uh, in the whale laundromat before he's, you know, <laughs> before he's willing to do what God wants him to do. And he sets out and arrives in Nineveh probably several weeks later. He probably got dropped right back in Joppa and had to walk the 750 miles still to get to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a large city. Uh, it was walled. It took three days to walk around it uh, inside its city walls. And unlike me, Jonah preaches a very short eight-word sermon. And everyone says, Amen. The whole sermon... 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Nothing more than that. No grace or anything else offered. And he says this day in and day out for three days until the entire city of 120,000 people have heard the prophecy. Everybody knows this eight-word message. Well, I was thinking, you know, if I was doing it, you know, it's like he, he must have had some other kind of, you know, musical accompaniment or something because it gets pretty tiring seeing the same eight words. And unless you're a mom, you probably do that every day, send to your kids. Eight words all the time. But he needed a little theme music, so he may have had something like this. Well, Jonah may not have had a rocking band, but I, I would have sure appreciated it. But he brought this message of judgment, and if you listen to that great DeGarmo and Key song, you listen to it two or three times in a row, it will be stuck in your head for a whole week. Uh, believe me, it's happened to me. And that it's what happened with that eight-word message. Not only was Jonah was saying it, the neighbors were saying it to each other. Uh, fathers were saying it to their children. It, the word got around. The message... Uh, the message strikes home with the entire city, from the poor to the rich. Even the leader of the city proclaimed three days of fasting and mourning. Not only did they not eat or drink water for three days, they did the same thing with their animals. And they proclaimed these, uh, these days of mourning. It's a call for public repentance. The people were hopeful that God would have compassion and relent, but 
they, they had no assurance from the prophet or anyone else. They just realized, we're sorry for God what we, uh, for what we've done, regardless of what happens. We want you to save us, but we realize we've been wicked and we need to repent. And yet when, this, uh, when, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, and if you're reading there in chapter 3, verse 8, it says that they even put so, uh, sackcloth and, uh, and ashes on their livestock. So because I mean, they were a great... Uh, great uh, nation with, with all their animals and stuff. So they've got, not only are the people in sackcloth and ashes and pouring dust on their heads, but they're putting these, these sackcloth and ashes all, all over their cows and their horses. Someone's probably going around with a little jar of uh, ashes and sprinkling them on the chickens. You know, they didn't even know what they were doing, but they realized whatever they did, they're going to do like 100%. It's like, kind of like what happens to us sometimes when God radically saves your life and you, you've, you know you've been a, a terrible sinner and you, you want to uh, get forgiveness and stuff. You go home and get baptized and you overdo it. You even bring your cat up here for baptism, which I think they attempted that at the first service and it didn't go very well. <laughs> but anyway, after three days of uh, uh, seeing the repentance, God relents of a disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. And this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. Why are you saving these people, God? It's like, you're not saving my people, Israel. They're, they're trapped in their idolatry and their wickedness. And here, here's these heathens who don't even know what they're doing. You know, they don't got the ceremonies right. They're doing all kinds of stupid things with the livestock. And yet you're going to save them. And he, he's not happy about that. And oh, again, the irony. For example number two in here. We've, seen, we've just seen Jonah in his misery in the belly of the fish. In chap, and in chapter two, he cries out, for God to remember him in his salvation. And now that God has shown, but now that God has shown compassion and the way of salvation to these pagan Ninevites, he's angry and he wants to die. He's so upset. Oh, again, the irony. Shouldn't we be happy when God's doing great things, even for those who we judge not to be worthy? But are we ever like Jonah? Have you ever prayed for salvation or for God to deliver you from the pain of your circumstances of a death or divorce or horrible things that have happened in your own life, that dark place that you've been in? And yet, do we extend that same prayer and cry to God for those that we value least in our neighborhoods, those people that don't put their trash cans up on the right day, uh, in our workplace for the people that we think are lazy or not as smart as we are, or even in our own church? We get a, a big group of people and we kind of hang in our clique and we don't we don't get to know those others that come with us, especially those that seem like they're very different from us. Are we ever like Jonah? And for the third miracle, the first couple miracles have been big splashes. This th uh, the third and fourth ones are little small ones. Uh, Jonah is sitting on a hill waiting to see if God will destroy the city. And we, we need a little bit more theme music here. So uh, the first uh, uh, message, they really like this, so we'll see what you think.
sorry about that. I really like the guitar solo, so I had to hear all of it. So Jonah's got his little MP3 player on, or his Sony Walkman, or whatever they used in the ancient days. He's got it on. He's got his headphones on. He's hearing to live and let die. God, thank you for saving me, but please kill these, ter- these terrible sinners from uh, Nineveh that I don't like. And God is still trying to teach him. So he does this small miracle overnight up, uh, uh, from a small seed. A plant uh, comes and grows overnight, and it's so large that it goes over Jonah's head and provides shade for him. And uh, Jonah has this shade, and for the first time, and in the only time in the book of Jonah, Jonah is happy. His discomfort is eased. He gets to relax a little bit. He thinks God's thinking of him again. And he, he's really happy with this shade tree. And yet God is still trying to teach him a lesson. And we get to the last of the miracles that we see in the book of Jonah. God provides a small little worm that comes up the next day. And the small little worm overnight destroys this beautiful shade and comfort that was provided to Jonah. And as God takes away uh, his comfort, the sun and the wind kick up, it gets hot, it's miserable, and Jonah is so overcome with despair to the point of saying, it would be better if I died. And we end the book of Jonah with God saying, how ironic. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, and you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Here today, gone tomorrow. And yet, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You cared about your personal comfort and feeling good, but yet you don't care at all about 120,000 people who, uh, who, who need the love of God. And what about, what about everything that their lives touch, all the cattle and everything else that's impacted by it? Shouldn't I care about those things too? And that's how the book of Jonah ends. It's supposed to end with us making, feeling a little uncomfortable as Christians and something to think about. It reminds me of the story that gets to me in the New Testament is the story of the prodigal son. I mean, most of us know about the son who blows his inheritance, a bunch of wild and seedy living, and then the, the father welcomes him back. Well, the third member is that older brother who's who, uh, he, he's, he, he's, he's really upset that God would honor his, his, his brother and his, his, his terrible things, that God would, he would even allow him back into his good graces. But that's how God is with us. God calls, is calling sinners to repentance. And if someone will realize it, and if they have to go through all that, he will bring them back in. And that's what he does to the citizens of Nineveh here. And that's what God wants us to think about. We're, we should be thinking about where our, our hearts are, uh, and are, not only are we doing God's will, but are we caring and reaching out to those around us? So lessons from the book of Jonah here as I wrap up, just a couple more slides. The first is is that God has compassion on all people and desires that they come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us, God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the second part of that application is that we need to pray for the lost and be willing to go to the lost to share the love of Jesus with them. And we need to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is saving people that are not like us, and even some people that we don't like. He may be saving people from Paso Robles or Tascadero or the uh, utter reaches part of the earth, which I believe is Creston. (laughs) (laughs) He may be reaching people that come from all kinds of political and economical and different programs and people that are just not like us. And we need to come to the fact that God is called to save sinners, and we're all sinners saved by grace. And a couple of scriptures just to wrap up from Ezekiel chapter 18. 
Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall live, he shall not die. And then we'll end here with the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. It should be very familiar to you. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And from verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that it does not return void. Lord, help us to be your, your spokespeople, Lord, to hear the call that you have upon our lives, to not resist it, Lord, not to run from you in any area, circumstances of our life. Help us, Lord, if we're in that dark place where we need to reach out and, and receive your, your love and understanding and your guidance and direction. And help us, Lord, to be, the, be salt and, uh, and light to this world, to uh, be willing to witness wherever you call us to be, Lord, whether it's in our neighborhoods or if you call us on mission trips or wherever it may be, Lord, that we may be good and faithful representatives of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.